You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have the legendary Alfred Liggins, uh, the CEO of Urban One. How's it going, Alfred? It's going well. Thank you uh, for inviting me onto the show. So you're running a, a very big company, but we don't really see you a lot of media. Are you kind of media shy? We're like, hey, I just like to put my head down and run the business. But why don't we see kind of a, a lot of press from you personally? I have historically been, I wouldn't say press shy. I'm not um, a press you know, pursuer. I, um, I'm not really crazy about just sitting around and, you know, answering a bunch of questions, you know, about, you know, what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. I much prefer to actually be doing it and running the business, you know, so it's really kind of like an allocation, you know, of, of time. I haven't really believed, you know, that just because you get lots of press attention that um, it, you know, has anything to do with the success of your business. I think the success of your business is, you know, how focused you are on your customers or your, your, you know, your, your, your core constituency, whether it's your viewers or listeners, you know, or your advertisers or your capital partners. And so I've always preferred to spend my time with them than telling the general public, you know, you know, what a great job we're doing, et cetera. Now, with that said, I'm the CEO of a public company. So I spend a lot of time quarterly conference calls, um, if I get, you know, requested, you know, by a press entity that I think would, you know, be advantageous. So if the Wall Street Journal was to call us and ask us, you know, about, you know, a deal we were doing, you know, I would, uh, I would have that, you know, conversation. But I don't, you know, actively seek out, you know, myself having a presence on CNBC as a pundit, you know, uh, you know, sort of, you know, talking about my view of, 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 of the world and, you know, the, the, the current state, you know, of the economy. Your mother, Kathy Hughes, yep. started the company. Did she really want to be in this game, uh, media and advertising? When, when you stepped into this business, did you really want to get into the business? Uh, in high school, they bought the, you know, the radio station in 1980. I graduated in 83, so I was in the you know, ninth or 10th grade. And, and I worked at the radio station in high school and the answer is no, I didn't want to be in the radio business. You know, at that time I wanted to be in the record business. Um, it was, I liked music. It was sexy. You know, uh, who were your favorite artists? Oh gosh. At I mean, that time. That, you know, I mean, that was, you know, I, you know, that was the, the, the burgeoning of, of, of hip hop, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so I definitely, you know, was into the current hip hop, um, you know, uh, you know, groups of the day. I think at the, you know, that time run DMC was probably my, my favorite artist. I remember going to see the raising hell tour. And you had a pair of shell toes, Adidas. I had a run DMC jacket with yeah. run DMC on the back. It was, I used yeah. to wear it all the time. I loved it. But, um, but I also was, you know, into sting, you know, yeah. um, when I was in my, you know, you know, early twenties. I liked, you know, I liked the police. I liked the Rolling Stones. I liked Prince. You yeah. Know, so my, my musical tastes were varied. Um, so I wanted to be in the record business. And after high school, I actually went out to Los Angeles and sought out, you know, um, uh, jobs in the, in the record business. Um, and I did that, you know, for about 18 months out there. And, you know, LA is, a is a fast town for a young, you know, for a young guy. I ended up um, 
I was working for a gospel record label called uh, Light Records, and I thought I had a job lined up at Motown, and I quit my job at Light Records, uh, and then the job at Motown didn't ultimately, you know, come through, end up, end up falling through, and so I learned my first lesson, you know, in professional, you know, pursuit is never quit a job before you have the next one lined up and in the bag, and so I was 20 years old, unemployed, you know, in Los Angeles, and um, and my mother um, said that she thought I should come back, you know, uh, to D.C., work at the radio station, go to, to school, at, you know, at night, you know, get my um, feet back up under me, and then, you know, go back out to L.A. and, you know, and pursue uh, whatever dreams I had, again, at a later time, and and that ultimately ended up being a, a fortuitous uh, suggestion. I took it. You know, I was unemployed, so it wasn't like you know, <laughs> it wasn't that hard of a decision. Um, but I came back and I started working the radio station. I've always had a, a knack and you know desire for sales. And I was good at, it and I started you know um, selling you know radio, and I started doing really well. You were a gifted seller. I was a, I was a gifted seller, and she needed young, talented, you know. Uh, ambitious, hungry, yeah, you know, hungry folks that wouldn't leave because we had a small little AM radio station, yeah. and you know everybody else would want to go to you know a bigger company. Well, I wasn't going anywhere, so I stayed and, and I started making a lot of money, and, and that was the hook, you know, and you know I, it just grew from there. And I remember exactly my very first year I made sixty thousand dollars. This is in nineteen eighty five. My second year I made a hundred thousand dollars. And then in my third year, I made like $150,000. And and that was a lot of money in 1988 for, you know, 23-year-old, you know, kid. I was bit by the radio bug. It was good. So I was like, all right, I'm going to make the best. It was a bull market in radio. You were in at the right time, would you say? You know, I wouldn't call it a bull market, you know, at that time. It was before radio had deregulated at all. You know, we had one AM station, but I had found... You know, I found something that I could do well. I was in a position of importance because, you know, my, you know, my mom, my family owned the station so I could make, you know, you know, make decisions. And so I kind of looked at my job then was how do I expand this opportunity and make this opportunity bigger, better, um, more forward looking. And the answer to that was we needed to find out how to buy an FM radio station. You know, the other advantage I had was my mother had hooked up with, you know, two African-American venture capitalists that gave her the seed money for the first radio were station. They based in, uh, they were based DC. in Washington. And so I had access to those guys. So here's these two, you know, brothers, you know, that were out, you know, looking to help raise money for and finance African-American and Latino entrepreneurs to buy stuff. So it wasn't like I was just selling radio. I was talking to these guys about, hey, you know, we want to get bigger. We want to buy an FM. And, you know, they knew how to raise money and find investors. They were they were my mother's contemporaries, so considerably older than I, you know, but, you know, um, I, you know, the conversation wasn't just, you know, what's the next advertiser I'm going to get or, you know, what's the next, you know, radio show idea. It was, okay, how do we buy more stations and how do we grow and how do we do that? And that was a really exciting and robust, you know, sort of, you know, Petri dish for me to kind of like germinate in. And, um, and that's what happened. And in 1987, we looked at a, trying to buy a bunch of different radio stations and 
most of them were, you know, too expensive for us to afford because, you know, even they had limits, you know, to how much money they could, you know, raise. The thinking of the, to buy other stations, is that coming from um, Kathy or yourself or both of you? You guys have like a thesis where, hey, we want to scale up. You know, we're partners, so we talk about, and she's my mother, right? Yeah. So we talk, but I was um, generally the architect of the expansion. You know, I mean, I was the one who would, you know, want to seek out. Now, by the way, she had wanted to buy an FM too. So well before I, you know, got deeply involved in the, um, in our expansions act activity, she had tried to lead an effort to buy WKYS, which is a station we own now, you know, but her approach at that time, because she was doing the morning show, was to raise the money out of the black community. It was the number one black radio station owned by NBC, um, and they had to sell it. Not, you know, a, a novel approach, you know, um, particularly, you know, um, you know, when you don't have any money, but turns out it was, it was illegal. You can't just raise and sell securities over the radio. <laughs> so when that came to her attention, because she had a, um, a listener that she didn't know, a loyal listener who worked at the Security Exchange Commission, who evidently called her one wow. day and said, Miss Hughes, I listen to your show every morning and I really applaud what you're doing, but I want you to know that you know, it's actually not legal. So ended up having to give, I think, raised like a half a million dollars, you know, and gave it back. That station ended up getting sold for $45 million, way more money than we had any idea of how to raise or, or access. And then I, you know, found a smaller station that was going to be sold, you know, that was going to be cheaper, had lower power, but it covered the city, you know, um, and where our audience was. And we were able to end up you know, buying that for like seven and a half million dollars. And, um, and we own that station today. In fact, it's our best performing station in Washington now. Yeah. WMMJ. And then we ended up, you know, um, buying that station WKYS that sold for $45 million. We ended up buying it from the people who bought it for 45. We ended up buying it for $36 million, probably about 10 years later. Yeah, you know, in 1995. Can you uh, describe your transition from you're hustling, you're the you're the sales guy, but then you start pushing buttons on the M and A side. You start buying stuff. No, I graduated high school in '83. I came to the company full time in '85. We bought our first FM in '87. So that happened in a two year period. Okay. Wow. Yeah. A lot of people don't know your struggle. Where there could be a perception of like, hey, uh, this guy. You know, his family owned the company. Uh, he had it real easy. Uh, you know, I read something a, a while ago about you guys struggling as a family yep. where uh, you guys were living in a radio station. Yeah, no. Talk a little um, bit about that. After um, you know, I moved to L.A. and my stepfather also moved to L.A., the house that we, you know, um, have been living in, you know, for the last four or five years while I was in high school, you know, my mother, you know, things at the radio station weren't going well, and you know, my mother couldn't afford to keep up the rent on this, you know, big, nice, you know, house, so... The station had some extra, you know, sp you know, space in it. So she made an apartment. We had more, the station had more space than you know than 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 they needed because it, it was an AM and FM in the space, and they sold the FM to somebody else and sold the AM to to my mom, my um, stepdad. So there was empty office space. So she ended up making that office space, you know, her home, you know. And when I moved back, and she was living there for. You know, I forgot how long before, probably a year before, you know, I moved. But when I moved back, I moved into the radio station, into that space, you know, um, 
you know, along uh, with her and forgot how long we lived there. So maybe we lived there for a year or so. But um, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is yeah, yeah, I am a, uh, I'm a beneficiary of nepotism. My mother owned an AM radio station um, uh, and she invited me to come work at it. And that's an opportunity, right? I yeah. would, you know, the, you know, it takes a lot of gumption and, and courage to go out as an entrepreneur and start your own company and buy your own radio station. Um, but it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't a profitable business, you yeah. know, when, you know, but you um, were closing deals, right? You were rising the ranks in that, that kind of short span. Uh, it wasn't like you, you came over and you started running the company on day one. It was more of, no, hey, no. I'm out there selling, closing deals, understanding the business. What fueled, I think, my rise and my standing with my mother and the investors was I became an anchor in the sales department. Sales started to go up. The little AM station started to make money, right? Because it was losing money before that. And so I think, you know, we got it to where it was losing money. Now it was making, you know, three or four hundred thousand dollars a year. you, Alfred Liggins, are claiming a lot of that alpha that you're bringing to the table in terms of the enterprises yeah, well, yeah. is increasing. I mean, a lot of the alpha is coming it, from it, you. It, it's just me and my mother, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, four other sellers or five other sellers or whatever. And so, yeah, so I was, you know, I was leading that effort. You know, by the way, at her direction, meaning that I, I didn't know the business, right? She had to teach me the business, but then I, you know, um, then I would run with it. And so I think the investors were happy to see, wow, you know, this AM station that we thought our money was dead in, you know, now has got revenue momentum. It's now profitable. And hey, you know, these people want to grow. So let's back them to grow so they can, you know, because I was like, we can... We can work, you know, we can keep working this hard, but at the end of the day, there is no future unless we get into the FM, you know, you know, station game, right? You know, and so, um, and they very well could have said, look, it's making money now, just pay us our money back, you know, or let's sell the radio station and we're out. But they chose, you know, to, um, to inv- you know, to invest in us growing and, and, and betting on us. You know, they figured out, I found, the, I found the radio station, and then they figured out a way, you know, to raise the money to buy it. And then, um, and we bought that station, WMMJ, in 1987, and we, um, we put an innovative uh, radio format on it, urban adult contemporary, because before that, all black radio stations all had kind of the same format and it was a big hit the first year it wasn't a big hit because we didn't change the format it was a soft adult contemporary station barbara streisand barry manilow yeah. and the bank wanted us to keep it in you guys that. are competing in the more mainstream where there's yeah, too many players and, and out we there. Did, and, and yeah. we and we didn't we didn't know what we were doing and it was you know it wasn't working and the station ended up falling out of the ratings and so then we went to the bank and said can we do what we know how to do now you know and so we changed the format and the thing was a success and then we started making a lot of money over the next five years you know, the station, we went from having an AM station that was making $300,000, you know, to over the next five years, that FM station, you know, along with the AM, we were billing like $10 million and making like five. Yeah, I mean, we were doing like $5 million. Are you running roll. each radio station with their own P&L? Uh, is that? No, it was uh, always a combined p and combined, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the start of it. And so, MMJ, big success. And then it's like, okay, let's, you know, where do we grow next? And so we started looking up the uh, the road in Baltimore, and we bought our first, 
you know, um, station outside of Washington in 1992. That was WWIN, AM, and FM. Did the writers of Empire, did they call you uh, to get some consulting? (laughs) It's not probably too many uh, family groups that have uh, taken uh, a business to the level of uh, you and Kathy. We know Lee Daniels very well. And, uh, and my, and my mother had a script in the television idea that, you know, in fact, we made a movie out of it on TV one called media, you know, that was, um, you know, very similar, you know, to, to this story and very similar to the empire story. Let's just say the, the concept of a, you know, black media entertainment, you know, business family, um, you know, was not. You know, was not a new concept. You know, when yeah. Empire hit the air, particularly, I, I, you know, when I was watching Empire, uh, and you know, they want an IPO. You and Kathy actually yeah. did the thing. Yeah, and, and there's not a lot of us people who look like us who have gone through that process. Yeah, when that happened, I was always you know focused on that. I saw all these other companies, guys, entrepreneurs buying radio stations. And I was like, how'd they afford that? Where'd they get the money to do that? You know, cause I knew these two guys at syndicated communications and you know, I, I was constrained by how much capital they had or their, um, their network of people or how they finance things. And they were what you called Mesbics, minority enterprise, small business investment corporations. And so um, they, you know, they weren't, you know, big, you know, money managers. Um, but I saw all these other companies buying a lot of radio assets and, uh, and I wondered how they did that. And it, you know, turned out they were accessing the public markets, whether it was public debt, you know, and then public equity. And so I made it my business to get to know some investment bankers. I forgot how I, you know, met the first one, but there was this guy named Mark Levitt. Were you just cold calling? I don't remember how I met Mark, but somewhere along the line when we were small, um, you know, Mark became a friend and he started and, and, and he was at Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer was a small bank. It wasn't like Bear Stearns or it wasn't one of the big, you know, you know, Wall Street banks. And I think I may have met, you know, Mark Levitt through a guy named Reagan Henry, who was a big African-American owner who's now passed away that had a had a, a, had a big company called U.S. Radio. Um, and so Mark was my first entree into learning how the public markets, you know, ultimately worked. And then, um, and then I started reading up on it, and you know, he came down and talked to the board, and I said, "Look, this is a direction that we need to head in," you know. And um, and then I got a call after we'd made a few more acquisitions. We bought, you know, into Baltimore, bought our competitor in Baltimore, then we doubled back and bought WKYS, you know, here in Washington D.C., and then we entered Atlanta. We did all this with bank debt. Uh, I got a call out of the blue from a woman named Kristen Allen uh, from Credit Suisse, First Boston, and they were the bank that had been taking everybody public, you know, um, you know, all the big radio companies. And so she, you know, she called, she called me and introduced herself, and she's like, "This is Kristen Allen from Credit Suisse," and I, and she started talking, and I was like, "Well, I'm very familiar with who you are." Um, and so they were a real Wall Street bank, and you know, they introduced us to high yield debt you know, otherwise known as junk bonds. And they did our first uh, high yield bond deal and we got rid of the banks, you know, and put the high yield debt in. They, and, had, a, they had a star banker, uh, I think around this time. Frank Quattron. Yeah, yeah, got in yeah, trouble. He, he, yeah, yeah, Did you yeah. ever meet him? I don't think I ever met. Yeah, I never met Frank, but he was doing all the Silicon Valley deals. Yeah. 
you know, when I discovered high yield debt, I thought I'd die and have gone to heaven because I'd been financing these deals with bank debt and you had covenants and you had to hit certain, you know, um, uh, revenue and cash flow numbers and your leverage had to come down, you know, um, uh, you know, every year or quarter. And, you know, the banks, you know, they, they, they got to a position also where they really, you know, wanted to lend to bigger companies and didn't want to do smaller deals. It was really... It was really challenging, you know, um, uh, to, to deal with them. If they had bad real estate loans and all of a sudden they get negative on radio. Um, but the high yield market, I thought I'd got, died and gone to heaven because basically they'll lend you money for eight years and you pay interest only and you don't have to pay it back till the end. Right. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, and so um, and no covenants. Right. You know, so. You know, your, your, your money doesn't come due if you miss a number. Um, the junk bond king. Uh, Michael Milken. Michael Milken. Yeah. Where was he at? He was at... Uh, Drexel Burnham. Okay, okay, got it. Did yeah. you guys ever deal with him? Uh, Is this around the same time that he's just No, gorging? it was before yeah. that. I think, I think Drexel was in the early 80s, and, you know, now when I'm doing all of this stuff, we did our first bond deal in 97. Yeah, I think Drexel was gone by then. I don't remember the exact day. We'd have to okay. look it up. Yeah, but yeah. but I never met. I yeah, I I I think I met Mike Milken years later. You know, um, after he'd been you know sort of you know excommunicated out of the industry. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, with uh, Frank Quattrone and uh, Michael Milken, it seems like a lot of the famous guys. They circle uh, they back. They got in trouble. They got they, in trouble. They got, they got in trouble. They circle yeah. back. You know, yeah. Milken's got a whole new platform now, yeah. you know, with his, you know, he's got a you know, big com- in a big conference and the whole bit. And, yeah. I mean, he made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, who knows, maybe even billions. I yeah. mean, he made a lot of money, do right? You, do you go back to uh, Upin Wharton? Do you go back before the IPO or after? I went back before. I went back in 93. I graduated in 95, and we went uh, public in 99. And what were you thinking at that time where you're already a success story? You got you know some stuff going. Why do you go back to B-School? My mother always wanted me to have some sort of degree. You know, she uh, thought that the kind of it's the corporate just, establishment would respect it's, you more. Yeah, and but, I think from where she came from, you know, that, 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 was, that was important. She never... Um, ended up, you know, getting an opportunity to graduate from, you know, from, from, from college. So I think she wanted that, you know, for me, I didn't end up going to, I went to night school at the University of the District of Columbia for a year, right? And then I dropped out in radio, so, uh, to sell radio. And so, you know, I hadn't followed in that, you know, path that she would have liked to see, have seen me take. And so I was reading the newspaper, the Washington Post, the business um, section prospecting for advertising leads, and I saw an ad for the Wharton Executive MBA program. And the way it was described in the ad is like, "Hey, you go on the weekends. It's you know the same professors, the same curriculum. You know, it's for executives who have to work." Um, and I was like, "Wharton University of Pennsylvania." So I don't know what possessed me to actually call up and find out if you needed a college degree to get into the executive program. And, um, and I talked to the um, assistant head of admissions, you know, a woman that still works there, you know, a woman named Kathy Maloney. And, um, uh, and I asked her if you need a college degree. And, you know, to my surprise, she said, you know, yeah, nobody really shocked to me. I would she, think you would need she, a, she said, yeah. no, it's not a requirement. Like you apply, you take the, the GMAT like everybody else, you know, recommend it. And we look at you, you know, more importantly, you know, people wanted 
folks to have business experience. And I yeah. had and I had a ton of that, right? Yeah, you may get a geek with a high GMAT score, but I, hey, I can also scale a business up. So there was something very intriguing about a. It would be you know I could go on the weekend, so it wasn't like because me stopping working and going back to school for two years was a non-starter. So the setup of the program um, played to my you know my current situation. And second, you know, it was very sexy that it was Wharton. And I was like, well, look, this could be, you know, a neat, you know, way of ending up with an Ivy League degree. Yeah. Right. And so I decided to pursue that because I liked that idea that, you know, you know, um, the guys at CINCOM, Terry Jones and Herb Wilkins, were both graduates of Harvard Business School. And so that was a badge of honor that they had and they liked that stuff. And so... I thought, you know, it would also be impressive to them if I went back and, you know, got my MBA, you know, from a, a very well-respected school. So it was like getting your ticket punched. At the end, I didn't make any real contacts that helped me with my business. You don't have any relationships that came out of that? No. That, that, that had you know, I, pro I probably lost money because the radio industry was just starting to consolidate. And if I'd spent more time buying more radio stations, you know, yeah. that ultimately would have risen in value. I'd be, you know... Um, so as a, as a net distraction where, hey, I didn't really get any big relationships. Or no, it's... I mean, put it this way. It's... it's it, it's only a net distraction if I assume that I would have spent more time figuring out how to buy more radio stations. And, 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 and that may not necessarily have been the case because I was pretty – there's probably one radio station that I'm, I'm, I might have bought. I had the opportunity to buy WDAS you know, in, in uh, Philadelphia, and I got nervous about where we were going to get the money from before we signed up, and, and I backed away from it. And you know, this happened while I was, you know, in school. Had it, it's probably the single biggest radio deal that, you know, I regret. I had a letter of intent to buy it for $23.5 million. I ended up walking away from it. You know, the guy, Gene Jackson, African-American guy, sold it to this company, Beasley Broadcasting, George Beasley, for like $28 million. Um, Beasley and those guys did what we did in Washington with an urban adult contemporary format, made it very successful. Ratings went up. They turned around and sold it five years later for like a hundred million dollars, you know? So in my mind, I screwed up, but I'm really glad I went back and I did it. Cause did you, you know, feel like you're mind sharper. You're a better CEO because yeah, of that experience. And I had that, and I have that experience. I know what an Ivy league business school is like. I know how they think, what they teach. You know, it's something that I have in common, you know, with other people that I, you know, interact with, did you know, you, did you actually you know? feel kind of the, the corporate establishment, assigning more value or hey I, I never really saw any anything different in terms of my pedigree of education i gotta tell you i have you know on numerous occasions had people people were impressed by it like you know like you know bankers yeah. you know that you know people You're kind of one of us they, exactly they yeah. it's like a club you yeah. know what i mean you know oh i went to penn you're a penn guy yeah. or i went to you know i went back to business school and because they all did it yeah and so it's like a club i won't yeah, I won't question your intellect as much because I know you come from Penn, or I or I know you've gone through the same educational process, you know, at the level that I have. Yeah. So I'm, you know, it's like you know your tickets punched. That's just the way they view it. it. Doesn't mean that it's true. Some of the smartest people, 
most successful people, you know, dropped out of college, didn't, you know, there's, you know, there's so many stories of people who yeah. had gumption, you know, um, and, and, and brilliance that didn't have an Ivy League degree, you know, and so, but that's why I did it. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't have if it had been the University of Maryland, I wouldn't have done it. You know, no yeah. offense to the University of Maryland, but I'm just saying yeah. it's kind of like, you know, it was my first aspirational, you know, vanity, you know, play instead of like wanting to get a Louis Vuitton like, you know, duffel bag, right? I yeah. wanted to have a Wharton, you know, business degree. As you know, the game has changed in terms of the the massive debt loads uh students are under. Do you think at a macro level in this country that hey, going to B school we need to rethink uh, the the risk reward in terms of how we approach elite education, expensive education. I got to tell you, man, I am I'm really just starting to wrap my brain around this whole student debt thing because, yeah, I didn't deal with it because I didn't really go to. I mean, you know, I went to college at night, right? The University of District of Columbia was you know, $1,500 a semester. It was like, you know, it was nothing. When I went to business school, you know, it was more expensive. I forgot it was like, forgot what it was, $45,000 a year, or whatever. The company paid for it. You know, that may be one of the reasons why I got in because I didn't ask for financial aid, right? I was yeah. like, we're writing a check. You know, um, however, today, you know, as I sit at 53 and I start to talk to, to young people and quite frankly, my girlfriend, you know, um, is a dentist that went through school with student loans, et cetera. And, you know, when I realize what it takes to come out and go through that program and the debt that you amass over that period of time, you know, it's just shocking to me. And, and that's, you know, that's at a professional degree. But even if you're coming down, you know, coming out of college and you're coming at, you know, out with $120,000 or $200,000 worth of debt, you know, that's a, you know, that's, that, that, that's a big hole that you're in, you know, from, you know, from the start. And, uh, and I think, yeah, ultimately, people have to make, you know, are, I think people are starting to make the risk reward sort of, calculation in their head but you know you have a problem because having education is still ultimately you know um uh, uh, a marker for whether you're going to be more successful or less successful you know it just happens to be that it's super expensive now you know um and so i don't know what the answer i don't know what the solution yeah, is once that has uh up to 50 percent of indebted students not paying on their loans. Uh, and so, of course, as you know, some people are predicting that the massive amount of student debt uh, where the wages are not going up, that that's going to be the next uh, crisis, that, that that debt load is, is, is building up. Uh, like a subprime mortgage bond situation that we experienced it's, in 2008. I, I mean, it's like, you know, if you're coming out, if you got a half a million dollars, you know, in debt, you got to make a lot of money to pay that off and you're paying interest on it. I mean, yeah. you know. Do you see anything nuanced where uh, student debt could impact our community, the African-American community, a bit more? Where, hey, it's a problem for the country, but is it magnified? Do you see anything where it would be magnified for us? I mean, I don't have any numbers to back this up, but I would, you know, I, I, I probably would be willing to bet of, you know, as as a percentage 
of our community that goes to college, we have a higher ratio of of folks that have taken on loans to get there because there's less money in our community, you know, you know, for our parents to go ahead and just write a check, right? And, yeah. and educate us debt-free. Um, and so we're probably suffering more under the, un, un, under the weight you know, of, uh, um, of, 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 of this debt phenomena than other, um, we have less parental support, less financial support. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we're we're reaching, we're reaching. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, we, we don't have the historical household, you know, wealth pools to, you know, um, to, 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 to fall back on, to, to educate our kids. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if our kids want to get, you know, school now, I got to tell you, it's it definitely is a, a problem all across the country because you know we've got you know a, a pretty well you know diversified you know company in terms of you know ethnicity and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean I've talked to a lot of young white you know yeah. kids that don't come from wealthy families, right? Because you know because it's not even if you if, even if you grow up in a middle class you know white neighborhood and you know you live in a nice you know decent you're not poor or whatever when it comes time to foot a 60 or 70 or 80 thousand dollar college you know you know bill you know yeah. for for a year like th- those 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 families they can't afford that those yeah kids yeah. those kids are going into debt yeah yeah definitely i just think it's uh magnified for our community in terms of less legacy wealth uh, even on on a small scale, you're starting from less. So that means your hole's deeper. You bought back uh, the remaining stake of TV One from Comcast. From my perspective, you're a deal guy in terms of hey, you know, you like to do deals. You want to think about scaling up in terms of hey, I got to be big to really matter. Yeah. Why haven't you hooked up with BET? Uh, where you know I could see you know the big agencies and the advertisers, right. they're playing us against each other. Why haven't the big boys you BT hooked up? I mean, you know, uh, I forgot what year it was. Actually, I do remember what year it was. It was right before BET sold to Viacom. So, um, you know, I forgot what year it was. Where they sold in '99 or whatever. but Bob Johnson tried to get me to merge with him, um, and uh, you didn't like the price. No, it didn't even really come down, you know, to, to price. At the end of the day, I probably, economically, I probably, you know, we, we had opportunities to sell the company a number of times. Bob Johnson For a really said, big number. Um, I, got, I got offered, you know, the radio company got offered to be bought by what at that time was a company called Evergreen, which became AMFM, which, you know, ultimately became Clear Channel. It's got Scott Ginsburg tried to buy the company. Mel Carmazan, who built Infinity, and then ultimately... Ended up, you know, you know, getting CBS and and was running Viacom. He tried to buy the company, you know, um, and uh, and we didn't want to sell. You know, we liked what we were doing. You know, we figured, you know, you're profitable. We're making money. We're you know, we're going to create value. And I never looked at it as okay, um, you know, I'm going to sell, put, you know, you know, fifty or a hundred million dollars in my pocket, and then I'm done. Right? I always thought, you know, I'd go and I'd you know, build a big enterprise and, you know, and stay in the game and, and, uh, and make a lot, you know, more money, you know, down the line. Um, now if I had taken those offers, you know, I'd be, you know, wealthier today because the media business ended up, you know, traditional media business ended up, you know, contracting and actually, you know, a lot of the, 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 the radio companies, including, 
what was Clear Channel, you know, um, now iHeartMedia, went bankrupt. Citadel went bankrupt. Inner City Broadcasting went bankrupt. Um, Cumulus, you know, went bankrupt, right? You know, um, now we didn't go bankrupt, you know, um, uh, but our, certainly our, you know, um, our radio cash flows are half of what they were. Um, and the only reason we're around today is because we did diversify. We got into the cable business, you know. Um, we're in the gaming business now. As you know, we're we're in the digital business. I don't know where that's going to end up, you know, but we're in it. And so um, uh, we did have an opportunity to match up with BET when we were just a radio company. I said, um, I said no, you know. I said one day I'll want to be in the TV business and the cable business. And he said, well, you can't get in the cable business. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because my partner's John Malone, and John and, and John Malone is never going to give you distribution to compete with BET. And so I was like, man, okay. that sounds like a real boss move, like kind of like, but it, that's how it, the game it, works, it, right? It, it's it like was a true. Mafia. It was just, it was yeah. true. Right. Yeah. But look, I get it. it. It, it, you know, it, you know, it makes sense. Why, you know, why are you going to create more competition for an entity that you're a part, you know, owner of? So Bob was right about that. And then he said, but I can get into the radio business. So I think he toyed after that with buying. So he's, he's threatening you that he could come. If you don't take my if you don't take my deal, I'll come after you, but you can't come after me. Yeah, kind of basically. And, yeah. and but he was right, right? And you know, so um uh you know, I uh Clear Channel had bought AMFM and they had to spin off a bunch of stations, like two hundred stations. And Bill Kennard was the chairman of the FCC and he told them that you should sell a lot of these stations to minorities. And so they were selling all these stations and Bob was at the table and he was gonna buy, you know, um a bunch of stations. As as we as we were. We we're gonna buy some stations too, but we were competing against him. Yeah. Ultimately he decided now, economically, it was the right decision against buying, you know, you know, radio. And I think, you know, they probably had ultimately decided that they, that time they had taken BET private that they were even, you know, going to sell BET. So he didn't end up getting in the radio business. We bought all the stations that we wanted from um, from Clear Channel, doubled the size of the company. We were public by then. Um, uh, but in the end, the better economic decision would have been for us to sell or to, or, 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 or to merge because he sold BET for $3 billion. And if we had been part of that sale, you know, we'd have a lot of money in our pocket, you know, but we'd also be starting over, right? We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have our platform today. So if, you know, having a platform and building and staying in the game, you know, is important to you, then it wasn't, you know, the, uh, the, the, the wrong decision. Um, and then later on, after we had created TV One, I forgot how many years we'd been on the air. It may have been gone in our fourth year. You know, BET had reached out, Deborah Lee had reached out to us about buying TV One, and we weren't interested. You know, we just, you know, we, you know, wanted to keep doing what we were doing. You know, I've had, Several overtures from bigger strategics, but um, not but not BET. Uh, after you you get in the game with TV One, and actually I thought I remember reading in the paper you were I believe you were testifying in Congress. Yeah, I thought I read that Bob Johnson was trying to block you. It was something related to the FCC? It was set top boxes. Yeah, um, uh, Bob. Um, um, there there was a move. Um, uh, Silicon Valley was trying to get the cable industry to open up their set top box data and and let them write basically software for those set top boxes and get you know um, uh, and get access to um, the data and content and try to do it by sort of federal regulation. 
And that A, that stuff's proprietary. B, us content owners don't want Silicon Valley anywhere near the box because they're just going to try to create user interfaces and sell advertising around it, just like Google does, yeah. right? And um, and Bob was on the you know the, the 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 technology side because he's got a new streaming service or you know Urban Movie Channel, so he's looking for you know the ability to have access you know to um, to these cable homes without having to go through the you know the gatekeeper you know um, uh, uh, you know stuff of the um, uh, the cable and, and and the satellite company. So we were on the opposite side of that issue. You know, and um, and ultimately we we won that issue, you know, um, but uh, he's a good friend. You know, I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, he created, you know, something, you know, many things, you know, uh, out of nothing. And uh, and I was admiring. And quite frankly, the reason I'm in the cable business is because I saw him do it and I wanted to to emulate him. Yeah. You know, and, um, uh, you know, there's there's two guys who, you know, you know, created successful you know, black television networks, you know, um, that make money, you know, in this country. Bob was the first guy to do it, and I was the second guy to do it, you yeah. know. Uh, and so, uh, Bob's uh, CEO at the time for RLJ Entertainment uh, some years ago, uh, he wanted to buy my company, uh, and it was like around Christmas. We were supposed to uh, really crank it up a notch, yeah. and um, uh, Bob didn't want to do it, and uh, apparently he got into it with the the CEO who was really yeah. bullish on the deal. Well, you, but, know, you know what? That Bob, Bob, Bob's done a lot. Of, he's been in so many businesses, and he's been, I mean, a lot of people don't know this. He's the largest African-American owner of car dealerships in the country. Yeah, I he, mean, got, he, he has He's a got like a billion dollars of revenue. Carlisle right? Um, I don't know if Carlisle yeah, is his yeah, partner. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know how he, he's financed it, yeah. but he got like a billion dollars of revenue. I don't know how many dealerships that is. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's, you know, had you know, two lodging hotel REITs, right? He's yeah. got a venture cap. I mean, he's done so many things. Yeah, he has a, you know? a and, hotel and, in Liberia. Yeah and, yeah, and one of the things that he had done was he'd been in the internet business. He, you know, did the deal, you know, he had BET.com when that first started yeah. up. You and I both remember that. And then he bought Russell Simmons 360 Hip Hop. So by the time it came to to do a, a deal with, with your company, I think, you know, he, you know, he'd had his fill of you know the the the, the non-success of, of, yeah. of, of, of the digital content business right yeah he, he was early you know in it and i and he i hear burned. you you know yeah, and he's probably look you know I'd, I'd prefer you know i prefer car dealerships yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you guys decided to go in another direction with uh roland martin show yep uh and i thought about um Deborah Lee's uh, comment uh, in the press where Deborah Lee says they canceled their news program. People were complaining at, on, on the BET side, and uh, Deborah Lee came out in the media, and, and she said that, hey, you guys want positive programming, but we put on the positive programming. Uh, you guys don't show up in defense of BET and the criticism. And so what I had thought at the time is, hey, if you guys have been feeding the community uh, crack, uh, for decades, uh, and then you start trying to, you know, give them vegetables with talk shows, uh, that that's not going to work. You, the right. people are already, they have an appetite for something. Uh, and when, you know, I saw the similar criticism, uh, with TV one on Roland Martin, uh, 
But being in that business scene, I know that, hey, who's going to pay the bills if the people are not supporting the programming? Right. Meaning that it would be rational for you to pull Roland Martin uh uh, if it's making money, making a, a, a good number. Yeah. Now, look, the Roland Martin decision was a hard decision. I decided to put the show on the air in the first place, so it was kind of my baby. And ultimately, it didn't get a large audience, you know, but we knew that that, you know, that it wasn't going to get, you know, a super, super, super large audience. But what ultimately really happened is the the pay TV business got tougher, Right. You started to get cord cutting and, you know, you start to see, you know, subscriber losses. ESPN getting you know, smoked. You know, right. You know, ratings going down because the universe is getting smaller. Yeah. Right. And so your um, your programming budgets, you know, end up getting, you know, constrained because your top lines, you know, you know, getting constrained. And so then you have to make decisions. And we had it on and you know, we had it in the morning and. We ultimately had to make a decision, and it was a very expensive show. We we're spending five million dollars a year to produce that wow. show, yeah. you know. And so, you know, we had to make a decision as to, in order to best serve our audience and to be competitive, you know, can we afford to invest that kind of money in a morning news program, or should we redirect those dollars into other day parts where we can get a larger audience? And ultimately, um, uh, we decided that you know we were going to pull the plug on that show. You know, we're going to revisit, you know, what, you know, our next sort of, you know, news, you know, um, uh, vehicle, you know, is, is, is going to be. And in the meantime, we're going to reinvest those dollars into um, to prime, in primetime programming. And we've got um, uh, a new, exciting, you know, um, uh, daily show opportunity, you know, coming in 2019 that, you know, we're outselling you know, uh, in the, uh, in the upfront, um, that will run in prime and, and late night, uh, where it has an opportunity, you know, to, to gain a much wider audience. And it's the same $5 million just yeah. repurposed. Um, and, and those are hard decisions, you know, that you have, you know, to make if business was stronger, you know, um, then you could continue to, you know, to carry, you know, a news program that, is more of a community service, you know, and less of a, of, 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 of a, of a profit engine. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, that's just not the, the situation, you know, that a network like ours, you know, being smaller and not owned by a big giant media company is in today. Hopefully we can grow, you know, to, um, a position where we don't have to make a decision like that. Let's you know? talk about that hard decisions. Cause uh, I probably don't know anybody who has made more hard decisions from a business perspective as you. Uh, you've been in the trenches making hard decisions. Uh, talk to younger CEOs and entrepreneurs uh, about making the hard decision where you become uh, friends uh, with folks who work with you, folks who help you, uh, help you build your company. Uh, you begin to love these people. However, uh, from a business perspective and industry changes, performance changes, mm -hmm. you have to break up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I'm sure at, at some points you struggle making those uh, tough decisions with, hey, the business is telling us to do this, right. but it's impacting my personal relationships. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, 
Um, uh, so two things. Yes, it's hard, you know, but B, um, uh, uh, it's a business. This is not, you know, it's not a family household. I mean, even though we look at our employees, you know, um, yeah, and our company and our as you know as extended family, but the reality you know is that you know it's 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 not an immediate family, an immediate family household. It's not just a, it's not a group of friends that are gathered you know to to, to socialize. It's 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 a it's a business here that is built to serve a community, you know, and to um uh and 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 to and to serve it well with integrity and 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 profitably. So you have to make you know um you have to approach those decisions in um a um uh in a in a, in a business in a business like manner and I mean, have you have you always been like that or you grew into that kind of comfortability I, like hey i gotta be the gecko this time i mean i mean i've 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 kind of always I, I've, I've, I've you know well look the gecko greed is good is very different but, than, but i mean like you mean that you're you have to look at the the decision is transactional in the sense that hey i gotta save my company i gotta grow the company it's not personal here's the thing i can't be of assistance to my immediate family or to any of my friends if my business is not successful let's start there all right you know you know i like to think that i you know i'm a resource for my family i'm a resource to my friends people you know but that that only happens if my if my you know business footing is sound and if I have resources, so the minute that I let that not be the case, you know I'm I'm a less I'm a you know, I'm a less effective um, uh, uh, person in 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 my personal and and in my family life in order to 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 be helpful on that level. So you know I've always pro, you know you know protected that, and although the business family you know um you know um, uh, is, you know, is, is, is personal to us. It's personal, you know, but we're here at the pursuit, you know, and the success of the business, because if the business is successful, then each of us then can also be successful at home. Right. You know, so if you, you know, are running a unit, you know, or you're a manager of a successful, you know, part of any company, this company, you know, then, you know, that success, you're going to reap the benefits of that success at work and that success and those benefits are going to filter back into your personal household, right? And that's going to, you know, newer to your wife, to your kids, to your mother, to your cousins, you know, to your friends, et cetera. And so that's really kind of the premise of how I looked at it. So you got to make the right businesses. I've seen business decisions. I've seen so many places go down because they got emotional about things. They got attached to stuff. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't let go of something, you know, you know, because, you know, they were so close to it. Um, you know, but if, uh, if you go down in flames, you can't help anybody. From a cultural standpoint, uh, uh, you know, do you believe that African American CEOs, um, they based on you've rubbed shoulders with folks all around uh, uh, the American business establishment, but do you feel like if you come from a traditional African American experience? Uh, you, with these hard decisions you have to make in the corporate environment, there's too much heart and not enough brain in terms of making those, these difficult uh, uh, decisions. Well, you, you start off with African-American CEOs. Look, there's a whole, you know, I don't want to say a whole bunch of, but there are, 
you know, a number of, of the African-American CEOs that I know, Richard Parsons or Ken Chenault or, you know, Stan O'Neill. Maybe not at that level. Maybe not at Those guys make decisions yeah, yeah. with brains, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but um, yes, I, I have seen, you know, particularly with small minority businesses, family-owned minority businesses, they... Um, you know, they're afraid to take on partners and expand and raise capital. They, you know, they won't let go of a, a dying line of business and transition to, you know, to, 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 to something new. Right? Or the nickel and diamond investor. You know what I mean? You know, and, um, and, and so, yeah, those are, those are ultimately mistakes, you know, because, you know, sometimes you got to, you know, bite the bullet on, on something that was your idea or was the start of something and pivot and go in a different direction in order to, you know, to, to be successful, you know, as they say in football, run for the daylight, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I've seen people, you know, struggle with that. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about political advertising, uh, with HRC and Trump, we didn't get any direct money uh, from the Democrats in terms of our platform, our digital platform. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, do you feel like black media is shortchanged uh, because there's a, a rational philosophy right. that, hey, you black folks, you Negroes don't have anywhere to go. Where are you going to go? Well, and you, it's, you, it's, you, <laughs> you, you didn't get any money because we took it. <laughs> 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 so uh, uh yeah so so it's kind of like hey you guys are going to show up anyway but even if you do get money maybe you're not getting the proportion uh, yeah in terms of the, that would really cover the, the the be commensurate with the black vote yeah um i've i argued uh about that a lot um and you know it happened a lot during the obama administration i mean like you know they like i remember you know in his you know in his re-election you know bid i remember going to see his campaign manager in chicago this guy jim messina and was trying to sell him on the need for black voter turnout etc and you know he informed me you know he, he was giving me the election on the electoral college right electoral college that's all he was focused on he you know wasn't really all that concerned about you know um you know, black voter turnout and, you like, know, hey, our, I got him anyway. and, 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 and our platform. And, and, and so I always felt that um, the black voter has been, you know, taken for granted and organizations have underspent, you know, to um, to reach it. Now, um, we're in the middle of a political year right now and, you know, we're doing, you know, you know, pretty, pretty well with it. We don't do phenomenal you know what i mean but we do you know um you know probably you know better than um uh, you know some other you know formats in uh in constituents constituencies but it but it has been a problem we also have a focus on it now we've got like a person in our organization who focuses on nothing but political and governmental you know um ad dollars right yeah but now there's also there's a way more at stake you know, um, you know, right now, particularly, you know, you know, this After year, MAGA. What, what this year, and they don't, yeah. they, they don't have Barack Obama at the top of the ticket. They got to work harder. I, I've been thinking that in, in some cases, MAGA could be a good thing for, for, for black America. And one is, Hey, if you don't take that black vote serious, the Democrats, you guys got big wallets out there in terms of your media advertising and your yeah. outreach and how you're going about things. 
yeah, you know, the people are voting 90% Democratic, but we can stay home. I got to tell you, so look, you know, when, you know, the Republicans started to spend money, you know, you know in the last election, Trump, Hillary, the Republicans started to spend money before the Democrats did on our stations. They weren't On spend, the black stations. On all, oh, us in particular. We had a meeting with the RNC. I mean, yeah. I, I, I had a personal meeting with Ryan's previous. You know, they wanted to, because the way they looked at it is if I can just, change the black well, I don't have to win the black vote but if I can affect it by one or two percentage points okay that's the difference between winning and losing okay yeah. and, and 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 a lot of places and they spent money against it and got and got out early you know and the and the democrats didn't did, do that you know and I think you know um I, you know during the that election, I you know, would tell people, I said, look, you're going to be, you know, I, I said, black people are going to respond to Trump. This was early on. This is before all of the stuff that has happened now, right? You know, but early on, we first started to, to, to run the Donald Trump that black people knew was Trump the billionaire, art of the deal, yeah. the, the Taj the Mahal. Cool guy. I mean, yeah. you know, the aspiration, the I boss, mean, right? That's yeah. that's what they know. They don't yeah. they don't know Trump the businessman. They don't know who Trump who really is personally. They don't know any of those things. They the Central see Central Park Five. They, they don't know. They, about they, they don't know. They they know that this guy was you know a billionaire flashy Mike trump tower Tyson, and all that michael and, jackson and, and 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 they you know that's not a negative to them right now fast forward when you know he starts talking about his policies and this that and the other and you get you know you know reactions like you did in charlottesville right you know african americans have a a, a a different perception altogether but i'm talking about on the early days when he first started running Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, and so I was telling Democrats, you need to you, you, you need to protect against that. You need to market against that. You were that. telling them directly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I said they're, they're, it's not like they look at, you know, you know, George Bush and go, oh, that guy, you know, he's definitely not for me. He's yeah. not, you know, you know, they, you know, you know, Trump had a little they had a he had a, a swagger. He had swagger and an aspirational, you know, kind of you know, aura, you know, um, around them. All right, so. so let's try to take you out of uh, Urban One, and, and let's take you hypothetically as Barack Obama's advisor. So our people love Barack Obama, love Michelle. Uh, hey, the spreadsheet is saying these people, when you look at the dollars, hey, I, got, I have $200 million. These people coming out for me no matter what. Right. Right. These people are crazy about us. These people come in no matter what. So financially, I'm putting my cold accountant analyst hat on. If these people are coming out and I don't got to do anything, I need to put my money where it, it's, it's a little kind of in the middle. What would you what would you advise Obama to do in terms of if you're just going by the data in terms of getting a bang for your buck? Um, look, I, you know, um. Because we had the excitement of the first black president, you know, um, because he's such a great orator, brilliant guy, um, you know, uh, people really didn't talk about, you know, the fact that there really wasn't an agenda for African-Americans, you know, during that. He's like, hey, I'll help everybody. And lots of people argued, well, you know, we were, you know, the, the, the bedrock 
you know, 90 plus percent turnout vote that we're not getting a dividend like the Cuban vote. You know, the mostly the way politics has worked in the past is you reward those people who have helped you get there, particularly if they need it. Right. Yeah. And so I was in lots of conversations, high circle conversations with CEOs, entrepreneur and business people. They're all trying to grow their businesses and felt like they really didn't have an angle or an access or an opportunity to with to, the, the Obama to, administration, with, with, the, wow. with, the, with the Obama administration. But nobody would talk about it publicly because they Everyone loves. He's you, like the you, Jesus. You 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 don't want to disrespect. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and um, but believe me, everybody talked about it, and they still. So talk. you're saying that there was a club of CEOs that felt like, hey, Obama, this is our time. Let us holler. And you're saying that there was just no. There was no connectivity. Let, put it this way: most of the people that I knew didn't didn't see it, and I knew a lot of well, you know, you know, well placed people. Um, and he chose to not, you know, play that path, right? You know, and um, uh, and you know, and that's what. It, so you, you know, so going back to your question, if you say you know the data, you know, hey, we're going to get these people anyway. My advice would have been, hey, you know, I mean, you know. Party, you know, your legacy, your 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 great president, your legacy is going to be you're the first black president, and um, you know, and 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 this constituency, you know, helped you get there. They're in need. You know, I would think that you would need to give that constituency a nod in some form or fashion, um, because but it sounds like now you're talking about uh, objectively wasting money, though. I'm saying that. Hey, I don't look, look oh. you're, you're, you're talking about, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't ever consider advertising or marketing, you know, objectively wasting money at all, you know, because you're I'm never saying in terms of which pots you put in. Do you go after the kind of confused or middle of the road white independent who can go either way? Do you put your dollars uh, over there or, hey, I got all these people over I, here. I, 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 I call it shoring up your base. Okay, and so uh, um, and so no, I don't look at it as objectively, you know, waste of money. You cause, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, first, first of all, there was a billion dollars spent on the campaign. I mean, they had they had more. There, there was no shortage. A slush of, fund. There was no shortage of money, right? You know, and even uh, in the battleground states. No you could shortage. still do something more no with, shortage with the of black money. outreach. You know, but look, that was one of the disappointing things. There was not a specific, you know, um, uh, you know, plan for you know our audience you know um you know this community but you know it it was what it was and i think that all you know people who felt that way you know were cool you know respectful and it, it was and we all operated and moved on and you know and quite frankly you know people now you know are looking you know in the rearview mirror and you know you, you know still don't have you know um, uh, a plan ahead of us, you know, in, in, in this new administration. And I think from a presidential tone, you know, standpoint, you know, um, you know, Obama is looking like, you know, George Washington right now. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, in compared to what, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the tone of the country and what's coming out, um, you know, of, uh, uh, of the of the White House today, so my advice would have been sure up your base. It's not as if reward those who have been, you know, um, uh, loyal. And there wasn't a lack of money. 
You know? Yeah, they so, just have a big slush fund. It, it's, 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 and I mean, I don't know if there's a slush <laughs> fund, but I forgot what the number was, but it was like yeah. they had a, you know, it was a billion dollar spender. So, I mean, yeah. they had tons of money, right? I tell you what, I, I, I've raised money and given money to candidates that I know can't win because they're African-American and they're trying, you know, and, and, and who knows, maybe one day when Al Sharpton ran for president, you know, I raised like $150,000 for him and I call my friends and they were like, why, why are we doing this? He can't win. I said, that's not the point. You know, the, you know, the point is, you know, that, you know, this is an advancement, you know, of our community and our representation, it pushes, and it pushes. our seat at the table. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I look at that as the same as, you know, spending money to shore up your, 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 your base, even when you know that they're not, they're going to be there anyway. Yeah. That's what some of our people said in uh, Florida. They said, uh, I'm not backing Gilliam because he doesn't have a shot. And what does he do? He wins. You're right. Uh, yeah. You, you know, so you got to keep, you got to keep pushing your yeah. agenda. You got to yeah. keep, you know, yeah. but anyway, that's again, you know, um, you know, so Facebook has been in the, the news. They have hired uh, some black executives to go after multicultural dollars, advertising dollars. Uh, and before this scandal, uh, some folks in the industry said that they had a plan where they were going to really build out a push to get more multicultural dollars. Uh, to the audience, uh, a lot of the ad agencies, not a lot, but... Uh, uh, they have uh, separate One of our, multicultural our, budgets. Our, our, yeah. our Chicago, the head of our Chicago office, went to you know run that. They they, they they picked uh, her off, yeah. right? So yeah. so so I was hearing kind of behind the scenes that Facebook has this push that we want to go into the black advertising budgets and crush that too. Do you feel like Facebook? Uh, has any responsibility where they come in and they start taking billions of dollars out of the, the ad marketplace and where the black media is just crushed. Right. Right. Do you feel like, Hey, that, you know, they don't have any responsibility. Like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They want the black money too. And Hey, no, I don't think they have any responsibility to, they don't have a, they, to the community. They don't have a responsibility not to compete advertisers. The, the, the people who have the advertising budgets, you know, have a responsibility to decide how do I want to use my marketing dollars? Because, you know, when you buy Facebook or Google, you're just buying reach. You're not buying context. You're not buying relevant content. And you can make a decision that you think advertising that is, you know, more contextually relevant. OK, is more effective or advertising that's mass and cheap is more, you know. Uh, well, a, I would argue effective. that uh, with their new uh, video uh, push uh, uh, that they're buying shows. Uh, Jada Pickett Smith is on Facebook. So there's they're getting kind of, you know, original programming. They're coming in that space. But but I, I but, guess. So, so so let me just give you a hypothetical. Facebook hires 100 ad sellers and says, I want to go to Burrell. I want to go to Uniworld. I want to go to whatever's left. And I'm just, I want it all. And they have the stuff that you're talking about, meaning that, you know, they right. can do deal deals with influencers and celebrities and they want it all. Would you, I mean, how, how, it, well, first of all, there's <laughs> not, there's not enough money at Burrell for them to hire a hundred sellers to go after. Yeah. Right. You I'm talking I mean? about the what's left. Yeah. Uh, let's say media vest. I, look, uh, yeah. I, I, I just was at, a, the National Association of Black-Owned Broadcasters, you know, you know, conference yesterday, and Mark Pritchard, you know, who's the CMO of Procter and Gamble, was there, and 
he gave an outstanding presentation about his company's commitment to um, diversity, you know, um, traditional media. They're starting to move more money back into radio, you know, out of digital, you know, yeah. um, because, you know, um, they've had issues with, you know, the a lot of shady practices, the, a lot of shady practices, the, 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 the effectiveness. He talked about the importance, you know, of contextual relevance. Right. And he talked about all the myths that were out there. Hey, I get black people in my general market buy or, you know, there's a you know, you know, there's enough black people in our ad or, or you know, that, you know, you know we're going to appeal to everybody. He was very specific that they thinks that targeted, tailored, you know, um, uh, uh, media um, is more effective. And he was also, you know, very um, uh, positive on the need to support black owned, Hispanic owned media and to support those communities. You know, uh, he's the largest advertiser in the world. Right. Yeah. You know, um, and so um, and beca because 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 they sell to those communities. Who, right? and he's been critical of Facebook, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, look, at the end of the day, Silicon Valley's job ultimately is to do more with less people with less human beings. That's what, that's, that's what technology, you know, ultimately that's what yeah. they're, what, what they're aiming. I remember, um, uh, I was having a conversation with this, you know, former big GE executive, um, had, you know, risen to the top ranks, you know, um, African American. And, you know, I'd read all the six Sigma stuff and all these things about, you know, GE's, you know, their system, their playbook, yeah. right? And they all talked about productivity. And I was like, what the hell is productivity? I didn't really, because I'd read these, I read the Jack Welch book and I was, I said, tell me, what, what, what does productivity mean? And he just said, doing more things with less people. So you got, you know, you got a, a factory where, you know, it took five guys to man the machines to, to make something. Productivity is figuring out a way to make it two guys standing back, man, you know, manning these machines and getting it done. And that's, you know, so, um, you know, that ultimately kind of flies in the face of artisan creativity, next level, you know, sort of connection ideation. Um, and, um, and Facebook is a big technology platform. They're going to be able to reach more people be, and, and be cheaper, you know, um, but we've got to find out what's our, you know, um, differentiation. But this relates to, let's say, hey, you know, Facebook comes in and so I'm, 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 I'm sorry. So, so we find out what our differentiation is, and then we have to sell it to the advertisers, and I think the responsibility is ultimately for a Procter & Gamble or for a Kroger or for Coca-Cola to see that as value and not just the tonnage you know, that you can buy. And, and I, I, I get you, they'll have some content there, but, but they're probably not, they're not gonna go head first into the content business. You know, they'd buy, they, they'd buy a content company. Have they, have they ever reached out to you in terms of building a relationship? No. Why? I don't know. I don't know anybody there. You're the biggest platform out there. I don't, you know, I don't, uh, you know. Well, back to responsibility, I would, I would counter that where, as you know, the practices of Facebook where immediately Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg, they say, hey, we were too focused on growth, being yeah. productive, yep. right? And, and just killing everything in our way. Uh, but, you know, what we've learned is that the big wallets uh, out of Silicon Valley, like they're doing stuff where, hey, we want to kill everything. Uh, we want to do it with as few uh, employees as possible and make it the much profit. Fuck everybody. This is our job. 
So, but when they do that, what society is starting to see and what foreign governments are starting to see, what the Senate and the U.S. Congress are starting to see is that they'll be doing these things. But at that scale, if you don't consider the consequences in terms of how this could disrupt certain well, segments of society, our democracy. So that's where the obligation is on the government. I mean, these companies are rapidly becoming today's monopolies. They're becoming yeah. today. They're becoming today's Standard Oil, today's AT and T, and the government's got to look at that. And I mean, you know, I uh, look Silicon Valley under the Obama administration had, you know, a, you know. Well, he was uh, in the bed with them. Yeah, they he, helped him he, get. I mean, he, he 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 you know they had a, a, a open door right, as if they were garage startups. Right. Yeah. These companies are monopolies now, and they've got more data. And they know more. They got more data, and they know more about you and me that, than the government does, right? They know more yeah. about anything ever, right? And so ultimately, the government's got to figure out how do you regulate that um, so that the playing field um, stays as level as possible. Because what's scarier and different about you know with, with them and technology is the, this is technology disrupting mainstream businesses and they're going to continue whittling down the employment base as they take over those businesses. Yeah, exactly. They're going to do more for destroying job, you know, um, you know, opportunity. And, and yeah, they're creating, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, jobs, but they're fewer jobs. They're in, um, uh, uh, they're in, you know, highly specialized technology fields that, you know, particularly our community, we're not going to make that loop back around, you know, in order to, 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 to get those jobs. And it may not just be one generation, you know, that it doesn't, you know, that it doesn't happen. It could end up being multiple generations, you know, before, you know, somebody's able to circle back, you know, into whatever the yes. new economy is. So I think, you know, it's potentially, and I'm not, I'm not saying you, need to stop the progress of technology i'm saying we need to be well aware of the the of, of the effects of technology because those effects are going to happen a lot lot faster than people can actually try to recover and and re you know train themselves and reorient yeah let me see uh in terms of my knowledge of facebook's secret plan to go after the black dollars where they started picking off your sales team i think the reason they never approached you about a partnership or, hey, let, let us kind of figure something out. Um, we're coming in this space is because they're trying to pick, they're trying to take you I, out. I, yeah, I don't think they're thinking about us. I mean, to be honest with you, I think the reason we haven't heard from them is because it's, it, we're small potatoes. It's, it's, it's chump change, well, right? Why would they have a multicultural uh, sales force? Because they said, you know, I mean, put it this way, you know, um, uh, AOL had, you know, the, you know, for a long time they had black voices, right? I was looking yeah. at Comscore the other day and, and they got like a million and eight. You know, I mean, there's like no attention focus there. And, that, you know, yeah. they were a competitor. And so all of these companies, they get so big, they think, oh, we need to we need to go into this, you know, genre. But they don't ultimately pay any attention to it. And the main reason why they don't pay any attention to it is because the dollars aren't so big. Right. Amazon's starting up an advertising platform. They're not thinking about us multicultural they're aiming at facebook and google's money thanks everybody for listening to go you could check me out at jamal martin on twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com that's m-o-g-u-l-d-o-m.com be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter you can get the latest information on crypto tech economic empowerment and politics let's go